1: Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The interview with Hugh Hewitt today is with Professor Jesse McCarthy. who is a professor of English and African-American studies at Harvard. He's been previously a guest on my show, and we talked about his wonderful book of essays, Who Will Pay Reparations on My Soul? He's back today to talk about two novels, one by him, Fugitivities, and one by Toni Morrison, Beloved. Good morning, Professor. Welcome back. Good morning, Hugh. It's
2: good to be with you. Thanks for having me
1: back. It's great to have you back. I I took up your challenge and beyond and listened to "Beloved," read by Toni Morrison. It's an amazing, uh, bit of art to listen to her read it. Have you ever listened to her read it?
2: You know, I uh, I don't actually uh, uh, listen to audio books. Uh, it has to do with. Uh, deep, long-standing habit I have and attachment I have to the printed word and to reading and uh, involves my own uh, graphomania to a certain extent. Um, but I believe in, you know, uh, the power of the word to reach people by all kinds of medium. And I, you know, I think it's wonderful that people are also listening to books now. I think there are some aspects of the book that A book, say for example, like *Beloved*, that really only comes through on the page. Certain textual arrangements, uh, notably in that book, that you can't get from listening to it. But that being said, uh, it helps literature to circulate. And also, I'm sure it's uh, there are interesting and and maybe even, um, in some ways, more compelling aspects to uh, hearing literature
1: being read. Uh, well, I, I and, look, yeah. Corey Allen did a fine job with fugitivities. I listened to your book, Fugitivities, your novel uh, as well, because uh, I can walk a long way listening to a good story. I the, the deficit is, of course, you don't have an annotated book at the end. You've got notes in your mind sure. and you've got uh, memories, but it does have a different emotional wallop um, when Toni Morrison is reading about baby Suggs uh, saying, yeah. I mean, I wrote this down. I had to stop on the on the path and write down, there was no bad luck in the world save white people. They did not know when to stop. Then baby Suggs went over to die and those were her last words. I mean, that's sort of arresting. And uh, it brings me back to the point about not having read Beloved when we talked the first time. I have mm-hmm. done an informal survey since then of people mm-hmm. of my age and 10 years young. Do you know how many people have not read Beloved? Uh, too many, probably, but what did you find? Everybody hasn't read Beloved. Uh, everybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody. Now, I haven't talked to an uh, African-American friend in the interim since we last spoke to find mm-hmm. out whether or not my suspicion is right, but since it wasn't taught in high school or college and wasn't on reading list and is mm-hmm. written by a woman of color, mm-hmm. I, I, everybody knows it. They know she's a Nobel laureate, but they just haven't read it. And I asked why, and they just said, well, it didn't cross my path. How does that change and ought that to change?
2: I don't know. I mean, at the moment, we have some people who are still trying to get it removed from reading lists. So we have a lot of issues to confront in the country. And uh, I suspect that in one respect, you know, the answer to how something like that changes um, could be said that you know, it it, it happens through um, through education. Uh, it also happens through conversations, and it happens through uh, reorienting our culture more broadly and generally uh, towards the humanities and towards uh, an interest in art and creativity, and not just in Money making and the pursuit of power and personal pleasure and profit.
1: But uh, uh, let, me, let me ask you, Professor, at what age do you think it's appropriate to read *Beloved*?
2: Well, I don't know that it's really uh, for me to say. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, I think I'm less concerned about the question of what an appropriate age is to read it, um, and more about. Uh, as you say, I mean, as you just indicated, there are many people of a very advanced age. I presume I don't. I don't mean to be rude, but many people who are, you know, clearly adults uh, who haven't read it. So it's not. It's not really fundamentally a, a problem of, uh, you know, uh, age appropriateness. I think uh, it does speak, however, to in many respects. Uh, Aspects of social segregation, patterns of segregation in our society uh, that are social, uh, that fall along uh, the race line, the color line, uh, cultural lines, uh, and uh, you know, really bespeak speak in many ways, uh, the extent to which although we often think of ourselves as living in a, an integrated society, uh, society or that's the society we claim uh, or we aspire to live in, uh, to the extent to which there is an insufficient uh, you know, commonality of reference, an insufficient uh, connection across experiences, uh, and an insufficient conversation that happens uh, between people of different backgrounds in this country.
1: Yeah. Beloved is one of the most violent books I've ever read, Listen to. I didn't read it. I listened to it. And uh, the age appropriate issue is only about that. And now, obviously, to be enslaved as a child is to have brutality visited upon you. And there's an issue about what time children ought to learn about that. The sexuality in it is isn't particular by it by modern standards, not even it, it's barely uh, intimate at all. It's just violent it, because slavery is so violent and the path that she followed to southern ohio and the character of paul d and the character of stamp they are characters that i will never forget but mostly baby Suggs i won't forget and the idea of working 10 years to get your mother out of so she can sit down i mean it's a it's an amazing book i don't think it's age appropriate in elementary school probably not in junior high although i don't know any junior high kids anymore but certainly by high school it would be appropriate uh Would would it be appropriate to let a parent know it's going to be a red professor?
2: To let a parent know, yeah. You know, again, I don't know. You know, I don't. uh, I don't work in education policy. You know, again, it's not really my place. I would say uh, to decide. You know, I. I. I, I'll say two things. Uh, One is that. uh, Uh. there's a lot of, of course, violent literature uh, that, you know, does get taught fairly routinely. Uh, I, have, I have a vivid memory of um, uh, being taught uh, Eric Maria Remarque's uh, World War I novel, All Quiet on the Western Front. Oh, yeah. classic yeah. war literature. I don't know if you're familiar with it.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes.
2: It's an extraordinarily violent book. Um, just, you know, very appropriate since it's a novel about the horrors of war. Um, but that's a book that's um, not... Routinely intriguing. taught in high school.
1: Yeah, routinely taught in high yeah, school.
2: It's taught to very young minds, and people don't seem to get overly alarmed about that. And so I would suggest that to a certain extent, we maybe want to think and ex- self-examine ourselves about the question of what kinds of violence we uh, routinely allow ourselves to be exposed to and other kinds of violence that we somehow deem beyond the pale. I mean, you do you realize that we live in a country that's saturated, saturated with violent video games, violent movies, extremely violent television shows that people uh, seem to have not uh, too much compunction about allowing uh, kids to watch. Uh, from I would say very
1: age, a very or, young but, age. You're right, Professor. You're right. And, and and of course shows that
2: involve a great deal of graphic sexuality and innuendo and so on and so forth. No so, innuendo
1: you know, on Netflix. Just Game of Thrones has got no innuendo at all. It's all nothing right, is you know. left to the imagination. <laughs> exactly. So you see my point. I do. <laughs> it, I do. I, I think. Yeah. You know, I think you're pointing out to the hypocrisy of people who only want beloved alerts to come out. And don't care about Game of the Throne analogies being taught from the front. I get that. I I do think, because I grew up in an age where children were protected in their innocence as long as possible, in a Catholic setting where they were doubly protected, I find it jarring that a 7th grader might read either All Quiet on the Western Front or Beloved. But, that said, there's one standard, which is, what are you concerned about? Let's apply it equally. Uh, so I, I've made up and I thank you for admonishing me and I have made up for that. And I, I didn't know things I know now because I know Setha and Denver and Paul D and I know that story. Now I want to talk about fugitivities. Um, sure. the, the most interesting character for me in that book is Salvador. And the reason mm-hmm. is, uh, in your novel, Salvador, do you want to explain Salvador to people rather than have me explain him?
2: Uh, Well, Salvador uh, Osorés is a. uh, At the time we encounter him, is fancies himself an artist, um, a painter, Uh, but in fact he has a very dark history um, as someone who participated in uh, extremely uh, some of the most heinous acts. Uh, that occurred as part of the what's often referred to as the Dirty War uh, in Argentina under the military dictatorship there. Um, and uh, we learn uh, that, in fact, he was uh, a pilot uh, in the Air Force who had been involved in the so-called death flights in which uh, uh, suspected or alleged Uh, leftists and communists um, were uh, detained, Uh, the word that is uh, often used is uh, disappeared. This is to say that they were uh, uh, taken off the streets in an an extrajudicial manner, kidnapped, uh, detained, uh, very often tortured, and then in many cases um, placed onto airplanes, drugged, and then uh, flown out to sea and dumped in the ocean.
1: It's such an arresting. I, again, I stopped. I, I, I trundle along. I'm walking, listening. I had to stop and make notes. Before he died, uh, Christopher Hitchens was a regular guest on this show. I think we we had about 70 perfect. interviews. And one of those interviews was I asked him about it in his memoir, the most evil person he ever met, and it was General Badella who led mm-hmm. the junta in Argentina and he said and he met some pretty evil people but he said Videla was just the most evil person the most wicked i believe was his term mm-hmm. person in whose presence he ever came into and that's Salvador and and by the way this in the same sort of way that mm-hmm. that scene uh where Jonah comes up and i'm not going to give the book away never give novels away make people read novels he just touches mm-hmm. on scenes where he walks up and has that conversation uh with the underage child in the nude being painted mm-hmm. is evil on so many levels. It's so disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, did you intend when you began fugitivities to get there?
2: Uh, well, you know, when you're writing and you're, um, you know, in the, in the process, at least for me, uh, you can't know, um know, think ahead of time everything about what you're going to discover about you know where exactly and how exactly um the you know the turns are going to to take and so i know i wouldn't say that it was something that uh, you know in all of its specificity uh that i knew ahead of time uh i would i would engage however. Uh, I did know that – I did know two important things. One was that I, it was important to me that um, in the portion of the book that I did know was going to um, involve kind of an experience of an encounter with Latin America that I wanted to make sure that um, the history, the political history of that place would come through as a felt reality Um and I also knew um, that on a moral level uh you know of course there are many things that i want wanted the book to explore um, but i didn't want to shy away from the problem of evil uh, I think it's an one of the you know one of the it's one of the great human questions of course, and many of the great novelists uh, you know I think of dostoevsky of course um, but also nearer to to this book in particular, um, and a major inspiration for it, including in some ways, uh, I would say, an inspiration uh, directly for the character of Salvador uh, uh, would be the Chilean writer, Roberto Bolaño. Um, I, I don't know I his work. I want to, yeah, I knew that I would want to explore the question of evil. And so when you put those two things together, in a sense, retrospectively, I can see how it was in some sense inevitable that uh, I would I would kind of come to a character like that. And I would also just quickly note in passing, you know, I, it's annoying to be the, the person who does annotations, especially of one's own work. Um, but yeah. I also gave Salvador uh, uh, the last name of Paul Osores. Um, and that's in part to make sure that uh, discerning readers will uh, – Understand my, uh, I would say, through illusion, my indictment of the role of the French um, in promoting uh, and in assisting in the uh, education of client states, including Argentina, uh, but also many others around the world, um, in techniques of uh, torture. Uh, Paul Osiris was a French general who's notorious for leading the torture program um, in France's uh, war against the Algerians uh, during the
1: Algerian war. I missed that entirely. You will not be surprised to learn, Professor McCarthy. But it makes sense. Uh, I've got to tell you, the... The South American, John, I've been to Uruguay. I have been in the Favala of Brazil. Yep. Uh, I've been, and yep. I just found it, but I've been there as a tourist, right? Not like Jonah was there deep yep. into the culture underneath. I've been a tourist in these places. And now I have to go back and look at them through different eyes, which I suppose is part of fiction. But this will yep. surprise people. I, I really want to know, what do you intend for yourself? Where are you going in fiction after this? This is a first novel. It was a very spectacularly reviewed. It's been very successful. I know why it's interesting. I got to get to Tiny Archibald in a second. But where are you going next?
2: Well, you know, uh, I have, you know, I have my, I have the, you know, the thoughts that I have, you know, sort of, you know, in my (laughs) In my secret folders, and you know, you know, one one has little ideas here and there. Um, Henry James is um, famous for in his notebooks and sometimes in his letters, reflecting on uh, what he called his donner, uh He used the French word, uh, but these sort of little germs for the possibility of a novel, which can sometimes come from the slightest or the tiniest thing, something overheard. Uh, interaction, witness the conversation that sort of um, grows in the mind as as having some larger possible significance. And also sometimes um, Toni Morrison would certainly say this, you know, the novel uh, chooses you. That's to say that uh, one becomes uh, haunted, uh, visited in a sense uh, by a character, often a voice Sometimes more than that, uh, that you just can't shake. And uh, when that happens, you, you know, you you always have to uh, pay attention and and listen to the muse. And um, and often in in, in many cases, uh, the thing about the muses is that they 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 take you over. And so it's really not a matter of choice. So I can't really say where where I'll be going next. Um, at the moment, I have a lot of uh, scholarly interests and, and and some things that I'm working on and pursuing in terms of um, in terms of my research and, and things that I want to write uh, that are that are not novelistic. So I suspect it'll be some time before <laughs> before the next one.
1: Oh uh, no! But well, let me come back to that in a second. I want to tell you from the perspective of a 65 year old. <laughs> There are two connector, uh, two two characters that really connect with people of my age. I think when they were reading mm. *Fugitivities*, one is Nate Archibald, who is my era, right? That's I, I watched him play basketball. I, I watched yeah. him uh, destroy the Cavaliers. I, I watched Tiny Archibald. Never ever have I considered what it's like to be an aging NBA star. Never ever yeah. have I considered. Uh, that scene, by the way, with the police is an amazing scene. I used to play in the game. I, it's just a great scene. But I also the other character is Jonah's uncle, and I don't have my notes. I don't. Have, I don't. Can't remember his name. Jonah's uncle oh, who uncle dies Vern. and leaves him the six thousand dollars. What's his name?
2: Yeah, Uncle
1: Vern. Yeah, Uncle Vern. The dignity of a quiet life lived mm-hmm. in obscurity mm-hmm. towards mm-hmm. the end of empowering your mm-hmm. nephews and mm-hmm. nieces is really a very remarkable bit of writing. Did anyone else notice that, talk to you about that yet?
2: Uh, no, I haven't had that many
1: occasions,
2: uh, alas, to, to to meet with folks and, and talk about the novel, you know, partly because of the pandemic. I think, it, you know, it's a real shame um, in that sense that, you know, I mean, we do some, you know, events on Zoom and so on and so forth, but of course it's not the same. But I, I suspect that if, uh, you know, I had been able to do, you know, the traditional sort of book tours and get to meet people here and there that that many more uh, conversations like that would come about. But I do appreciate you uh, noticing that, and I do think for me it was important. And I'll say uh, in passing because uh, you did just <clears throat> read um, *Beloved*, that uh, you know there's you know, one of the many important um, themes that. Uh, that book explores in such intensity um, is the reconstitution and the uh, rebuilding of family uh, in the wake, in the aftermath of slavery. And uh, there's a really magnificent book uh, by the historian uh, Heather Andrea Williams called Help Me to Find My People. And uh, I'm sure you're someone who takes a, a strong interest in, you know, in 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 family as you know as a, as a social unit as and as a and as a and as a social force. Um, and I think, uh, but you may not necessarily uh, know that much about the history of the African American family specifically. In relationship to uh, very difficult uh, paths that people have have walked in light of U.S. history, and I think Heather Andrew Williams' book helped me to find my people. Uh, you know, that's one of the books that has very, very deeply influenced me, huh. uh, and uh, I think is a really extraordinary and revealing book with respect to um, the lengths people went to. Um, to recover, to restore, and to um, reconstitute kinship. And I'll also say, uh, because I do think, you know, the fiction has its place and its part, but there's also a a certain amount of just knowledge of our own history uh, that, you know, uh, that doesn't sufficiently get taught, um, that... uh, it's also worth thinking uh, about uh, again, the 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 power involved in um, sustaining kinship and family under certain really extreme conditions and uh, And there's been extraordinary work in this regard also um, by the great uh, uh, historian uh, Tara Hunter. Uh, who just recently, just a few years ago, brought out um, this book called Bound in Wedlock. I don't know. It. Uh, which is, I believe, the first study of uh, the institution of marriage uh, within African-American life um, in slavery and and its aftermath. Um, and I'm sure that you're also interested in, in marriage. And that's an extraordinary study of, again, uh, the length that black folk went to to sustain bonds of marriage and how they thought about marriage and how they lived marriage, again under extraordinary conditions.
1: There's a great uh, yeah. There are there are the two African scenes American family
2: that ought to be ought to be known, and I'm sure you will recall uh, the notorious Moynihan report. Yes, um, and many of the allegations made in that report about the state of the black family and uh, notably the ways in which that report essentially accused black women um, and accused a matriarchal uh, structure of being at the root of uh, an alleged dysfunctionality. And, you know, people tend to to know the report more than they do uh, the refutations of those allegations by historians. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of the great book by... Uh, Herbert Gutman, um, *The Black Family in Slavery and Freedom* is a book from 1977, uh, not that long after the Moynihan Report of 65, um, which you know categorically dismantled uh, those allegations. And again, a classic, highly documented work of history um, that really gives great insight into the reality of um, black
1: family life and structures. Um, and in its aftermath, the, the Moynihan report was brought into the Nixon White House in the person of Daniel Patrick Moynihan and his argument for benign neglect, and it led to Nixon's proposal of a negative income tax to do away with the aid to families with dependent children incentives to destroy family. And I do blame government for a lot of the destruction of all families, but in particularly African American families. Uh, it's a long conversation. I want to go back to the novel, though. Two, sure. two scenes you just brought up in my mind. One yeah. is Paul D. walking with Sepha and Denver to the carnival and their shadows interplaying, uh, mm-hmm. trying to reunite a family that has been destroyed. And it, Paul D. taking the place of her husband, who's gone. Uh, but then to you, your to Fugitivities, the novel where mm-hmm. Jonah is traveling with his father to the uncle's funeral. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. In a very... I mean, it's a very relatable thing to me. I've got adult children, mm-hmm. right? So I've got, I, I'm, listen, I'm looking at this, thinking up to myself, well, Jesse McCarthy has something here, and you're going to reach a lot more people with novels than with histories, Professor. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that enter into your calculation at all? Because that is beyond color. That is beyond race. That is about fathers and sons.
2: Uh, well, we we can certainly aspire to that. I mean, I, I, I and I certainly hope that's the case. I'm, you know, for me, I think that I know mean, I'm in in some respects someone who uh, uh, has a strong attachment to um, to the aesthetic power of art, and I think that one of the ways that that um, power realizes itself is, indeed, as you're suggesting, um, its ability to kind of reach in and grab hold of people uh, wherever they are um, in their lives and to pull them to a, to a center of gravity um, that in many ways is a common one to human beings. Um, that it, it ties us back to some of the primordial structures of our, of our existence, uh, of the way in which we experience the world. Uh, we're all mortal. Uh, we all have uh, uh, families and social relations, and we all have deep confusions and contradictions. Uh, and I think that uh, you know, those things are things that we need to address. We're also meaning-making creatures. Um, and we understand the world uh, through the prism of meaning. And I think that to the extent that, you know, the work of art, um, the work of fiction, uh, you know, D.H. Lawrence called the novel The One Bright Book of Life, uh is capable of having a particularly kind of democratic reach partly i think because its form is is relatively loose and capacious um and uh you know can sort of touch on so many things and so many registers and pull in many different layers of experience and also many different human types um uh, really sort of range across uh the breadth of 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 um, not only human experience, but the, the variety of humanity itself, you know, that's something that uh, I've, you know, always, uh, you know, been deeply drawn to. And to the extent that, you know, I'm able to do that, you know, of course that's, you know, that's the in some ways the, the highest aspiration, uh, <clears throat> one of the highest goals you can have for yourself uh, as a writer. I think, very hard to achieve, uh, you know, there are many, many, many writers uh, who are going to do a much, much greater uh, and much more successful job of it than than I could. Uh, but certainly it is very much something that I think about.
1: Uh, would you tell me about your father?
2: Uh, well, I, you know, I have a complicated relationship to, uh, to fatherhood. Uh, and to my father uh, i you know i 'm actually to be perfectly honest with you uh, somebody who really hates to talk about myself you know I wrote this collection of essays in which um, you know I explore a number of questions uh, relating to art and race, culture, politics, all kinds of things, and there 's a certain fashionability. Uh, these days, and in the contemporary, uh, to write about oneself, to write, you know, the personal essay. Um, And uh, there's uh, a longstanding now sort of uh, fashionability of uh, the autobiographical writings and memoir writing. I I, I myself find it uh, 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 terrifying to, to, to write in that mode. And I'm always deeply uncomfortable uh you know with that kind of ex- exposure and exposing of the self um and and prefer to to write through the prism of of art and you know cultural and expressive objects rather than to to talk about uh you know myself I, I you know it, the, If you think that that I suppose I'd be willing to say on a radio show about, uh, you know, my father is that uh, uh, I have, um, you know, what I would say, I'm very fortunate um, to have uh, a very loving relationship um, there. And I think that, you know uh there's there's a long history uh, <laughs> recounted in many ways through a great deal of literature about the fraught relationships uh uh between uh fathers and sons uh and also fathers and daughters and fatherhood in general um, and one one wishes one thinks sometimes that um, if we if we could somehow um, figure out how to have uh, better versions um, and healthier versions uh, of that bond and that relationship, it might do a great deal uh, to heal some of the wounds that, um, that we see so often and repeated um, and sort of cyclic, cyclically repeating themselves uh, throughout history and in all societies, not just our own, of
1: course. I, I am sympathetic, but I am persistent. Uh, did your father read fugitivities? <laughs> uh, yeah. What do you think of it? I'm very proud of it. I thought so. I, I I I would guess I would be very astonished if he wasn't. At the same time, and I'm not going to press you on this. You've you've indicated you've thrown up the yellow flag. Uh, I won't press you on it. I'm just fascinated by the relate. It goes back to Greek tragedy, right? And uh, Mm. fathers and sons have been the centerpiece of Western literature since there was Western literature. And I hope you'll plummet more, but there's a, there's a relationship there. Last question. You've been very generous with your time, professor. Does Harvard honor the novel as much as it does the scholarly work of history or research in its considerations of tenure? If it doesn't, it's their mistake. I don't recall that it does <laughs>
2: um, well, you know I uh, you know the short answer is I have no idea um, infamously uh, the issue you're referring to is uh, often you know metaphorically referred to as, as being a black box. Um, no one knows quite how the decisions are made and I respect that to the to the extent that I think that you know, in in, in in some respects, you know, um, uh, you know, it could be even more devastating and awkward to know all the, uh, uh, you know, um, you know, personal, uh, or or interpersonal reasons for why you know something goes one way or the other. Um, but uh, what I will say is that uh, you know, I don't uh, worry myself too much about the question of whether or not. Um, you know, my novel, quote unquote, counts, Um, you know, I, in my, in my function uh, as, you know, a professor, as a teacher, as a researcher, and as a scholar, um, I, I have no problem with the notion that there's an expectation uh, for me to, you know, produce scholarship um to produce uh you know uh, critical works and to generate ideas that um that are then you know uh, available for uh consideration and comparison uh, uh amongst my peers right i mean i i also you know am somebody who is involved in a uh, very rich conversation with scholars um all across country and and around the world who are interested in the same question in the same questions and issues that that I am and at the end of the day um, you know you know any uh, university reaches out to the field so in many respects uh, uh, you know they reach they send letters out and they ask people who are uh, in your field uh, to comment on your work Um, and so you know, there's this aspect of peer review, in a sense. There's a there's a question about, um, you know, how you fit into that conversation, um, and I think that that's you know, uh, that's a you know, at least one way of doing it, and uh, I I welcome uh, you know, being uh, 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 being in that conversation, and so for me, you know, the, the thing about you know the novel and, and doing that—that uh, that part of uh, what we call the creative side, the creative work that I do. Uh, you know, I, as I said before about the muses, that's something that's sort of involuntary. Uh, that's how I see it. Uh, you know, um, I would do it. I would do it no matter what. You know, and so um, whether or not it's successful, whether or not. Um, you know, it does well in the marketplace, whether or not it helps or hinders, uh, you know, my my academic career is really not that important to me.
1: Oh, interesting. You know, uh, Professor, I, I sat for probably half of my career on the tenure and promotion committee at Chapman Law School, and I always was sort of the odd professor out because I always asked, does it matter? Did it impact trajectories of lives for the better? And is anyone reading it? And mm-hmm. you know that actually in law school world, nobody can, it's it's citations in the Supreme Court is the home run, but that doesn't happen, and we're increasingly writing for smaller and smaller audience of peer reviewable stuff and it and they forget does it matter? Does it actually matter, or is it just you know writing into the void? Novels mm-hmm. matter, uh, so do history. you've quoted a couple that matter already you've mm-hmm. referred to a couple that matter. So, I just I would encourage you to just keep writing novels that blast through and and impact people of very different walks of life and places that you are and I hope Harvard honors that what uh, last question what's your next project? What's your next work going to be? Is there going to be more essays which mattered? Uh, Otherwise, I wouldn't have had you on. Obviously, it goes back to the fact that my pastor preached from your book, and that's what I originally heard about Jesse McCarthy from, and then I'm now into Toni Morrison and fugitivities. It's always a winding road. We could play the Beatles right now. What's next?
2: Um, Well, uh, you know, uh, uh, there are a number of things. There's always a lot of projects uh, in the works. Um, I'm very much at work right now on... uh, what will, uh, I'm I'm sorry to disappoint you, be a a scholarly monograph um, that looks at um, uh, black writing um, in the period of the early Cold War and thinks a lot about aesthetics and politics in particular. I'm interested in that. Oh, wow. 1965, yeah. And and, and I'll just say very, very briefly that I also think that, um, you know, very, very pointed... Um, scholarship, allegedly narrow scholarship, is also tremendously important and invaluable. And indeed, uh, much of the work that I do, for example, um, you know, and the work that I do in my essays, wouldn't be possible without my ability to go to the library and find certain things that um, someone who dedicated, you know, a a decade to really exhaustively understanding and researching and getting down, you know, exactly right, uh, that I wouldn't be able to even do what I do without the existence of that scholarship. So I'm somebody who actually deeply believes that um, a humane and and literate society also needs uh, and and ought to, especially one with enormous surpluses of capital like ours, (laughs) needs and ought to devote a great deal uh, uh, to accumulating knowledge and wisdom for its own sake. But what I will also say is that um, in terms of next projects, one of the things that I am excited about is that uh, I was asked by uh, the Norton Library series to write a uh, an introduction for a new edition of W.E.B. Du Bois's The Souls of Black Folk, oh, wow. um, and I just finished working on that. Um, and so that'll be out. Uh, relatively soon, I don't know that we have a pump date yet, but um, but I'm very honored, obviously, to be uh, to be you know in the position of introducing that seminal work, um, and so that's the work uh, to 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 look out for. Have you read the Souls of Black Folk?
1: No, no. Uh,
2: well, ladies,
1: uh, I I know about Du Bois only because I know history, and and I don't know his writing, but I know his place. I am curious, though, Professor. To, to close yeah, okay. this out uh, I'm not against scholarship I'm all for it. I just don't yeah. think it ought to be a necessary component of advancement in the world because sometimes you don't get your best work by doing what is obligatory. you get your best work but by doing what is uh, as you say the muses oblige you to do and I just don't believe rank and tenure committees believe that they they want that they believe in the inevitability of uh, of Scholarship, but being the only marker of success, I fought against that for 30 years now, uh, unsuccessfully most times. But I, I just don't know whether or not people understand the importance of both, not the exclusion of either, but the importance sure. of both.
2: I think that's wonderfully
1: said. Uh, you know, I don't want to comment too much further on it. <laughs> sure. All right. Done. Hey, Professor Jesse McCarthy, I will look forward to the introduction. Then I will read Du Bois when it comes out, when I get to read your introduction to Please him. Do. And uh, I look forward to having you back when that comes out, and we will talk again. I appreciate your time. Have a good class today if you're teaching. I will. Thanks a lot, Hugh. Thank you, Professor McCarthy. Jesse McCarthy, Harvard University, author of Fugitivities. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888 888 1172. You'll be glad you did, and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview